I've pastored here, I planted this church 18 and a half years ago, and that was my first without further ado in 18 and a half years, so I feel good about that, feels good. Before we get to the sermon today, um, one more announcement. Um, as elders, I'm thrown off by not laughing about what I said, okay? That has nothing to do with the elders, but I'm thrown off because it was pretty funny. Okay. Anyway, as elders, we're making an effort um, to, or more of an effort to have more leaders serving uh, within church services and the body and, and all of that, men and women, as a picture of service and love within and to the body of Christ. And so you may have noticed last week we had um, women serving uh, or handing out the elements uh, for communion. We want to display a picture of service and love in all of those ways. And as we research and look and read the scriptures, we see that there's nothing that is biblical or unbiblical about having men versus women or women and, and men both uh, participating in, in that. Um, and so moving forward, you'll see more of men and women helping in um, serving communion in doing that. We wanted to give you a heads up um, about that afterwards, clearly, because we did it last week, but okay. Well, today we are, as, as Chris mentioned, we're beginning a new series, um, one that is going to be likely a long series, okay? So this is going to take us a while to get through. We're going to be working through the book of Acts together. So go ahead and, and turn there. We're not going to read it quite yet. If you're new to um, the Bible or unfamiliar with it, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The very next book is Acts. It's a big book, so if you uh, want to just kind of fan and find it, that is totally fair. Um, but as we get into the study, there's some things that I want to comment on. We're going to see this from the beginning uh, today and then as we move forward, but ultimately is this. The resurrection is the ultimate, the essential work of King Jesus and it continues to manifest throughout the world through His people, the church. And we're going to talk more about that later today. We're going to see that running throughout the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not as much the Acts of the Apostles as it is the continued Acts of Jesus, the resurrected King. Now, only a few of you um, were here 17-ish years ago, but I have preached through the book of Acts before here at Cornerstone. It was early in the life of Cornerstone. So, why do this again? Why go through the book of Acts again? Well, first, let me say that it's not going to be the same series. Um, I won't be preaching the same sermons. I'm probably not going to be looking at those sermons. I don't even know if I view the book of Acts the same way as I did 17 years ago. And so, it will not be the same, but there are a few reasons that we're going through it now. First is this, in, in light of the series that we just finished, How We Got the Bible, it will be good to look at this book through the lens that we've learned in that series. And then secondly, because of our values as a church, 
I, I truly believe that um, we're going to be challenged to seek to live out our values more as we work through the book of Acts. That's my hope as your pastor, that's our hope as elders of the church. And so let's look at some of the background for the book of Acts, and then we'll get to the first three verses of it in a bit. But as we get into it, I want to, re- want to remind you of the series um, that we just finished, How We Got the Bible. The first sermon of that series, we talked about, in the midst of that sermon, different genres of uh, the Bible. So different books, and even different parts of different books, are different genres. And so we don't we don't approach those or read those the same way. The example that I gave over and over is we don't read Proverbs the same way that we read Galatians. Well, as we come to Acts, Acts is a historical book. And so we should ask, what does that mean? And how does the fact that Acts is a historical book affect the way that we read it? Well, one of the things we we want to know from the very beginning is Acts is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Hopefully that makes sense, but but Acts is describing the circumstances of the early church. It's describing the events that took place. It is not prescribing things. In fact, there isn't a single command in all of the book of Acts to you or to me. So we don't approach this book assuming that God is prescribing to you the things you are to do. There's many examples of that that we're going to see as we go through it from start to finish. Now, does that mean we don't come to the book of Acts ready to learn or to grow? Absolutely not. We should, and hopefully we will. We must learn from it. There are commands to other people or peoples that we know are things that we must do, things like repenting of our sins. We don't read the book of Acts as if it's written to us. We read it as if it's written for us. Ultimately, Acts is the story of some of the beginnings and history of the church, and that is significant. It's most significant because that's our story. This is our history. It's the history of the church, the beginnings of the church. And so we should want to know it and be able to retell it the best that we can. As we approach the book, notice that the author, in the very beginning, doesn't introduce himself. So, Acts is um, a part of, as well as four Gospels, um, this group that belongs to New Testament books that are generally referred to as anonymous because the author doesn't introduce himself. That doesn't mean we don't know who wrote those books. Church history tells us that the authorship of Acts is attributed to Luke. And so, we, we want to know, who is this guy, Luke? Well, we know that Luke was the author of a previous book, the gospel account by his name, the gospel according to Luke, 
He refers to that in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And then in Philemon, the book of Philemon, verse 24, Luke is referred to as a fellow worker with Paul. In Colossians 4, verse 14, Luke is referred to as the beloved physician. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says that Luke is the only one who is with him while Paul is in prison. So we can, we can get from that. Luke is a physician, he's a doctor, and he's also a co-laborer, a servant with the Apostle Paul. And we can see and learn just by reading the work that he does in Luke and in Acts that he's a careful student and laborer who worked to give an account for us of the life and works of Jesus. And that's a blessing. And most scholars date Acts as being written before A.D. 70 or between 80 and 95 A.D. New Testament scholar uh, Douglas Moo writes in favor of an early date, and he gives four reasons that I want to share with you of that early date. First, he says uh, it's... Uh, because of Luke's apparent ignorance of the letters of Paul. Now, we know uh, as, as recipients of God's Word, Paul wrote a lot of letters. And those letters were written to the churches that we're going to encounter that he established as we go through the book of Acts. Well, Luke doesn't seem aware of any of those letters which would have been written if the book of Acts was written at a later date. Secondly, Luke's portrayal of Judaism as a legal religion. This is a situation that would have changed abruptly with the outbreak of the Jewish rebellion against Rome in AD 66. Third is Luke's omission of any reference to the Neronian persecution, which if it occurred when Luke was writing, would have affected his narrative in some way. And then fourth is the vivid detail of the shipwreck voyage, uh, which we find in, in uh, chapters 27 and 28, which suggests a very recent experience. And so, he says that for those reasons, Acts should be dated in the mid-60s A.D. Now, this book of Acts that we're going to work through is not going to take us this long, but it, it covers a period of about 32 years. That's a long time. And to give some perspective of how long that is, George Bush Sr. was still president 32 years ago. Okay, that's a long time. If, for you young people, that's actually George W. Bush's dad. Okay? So not, not the one you're probably aware of, the dad. He was still president 32 years ago. That's a long time. A lot happens over that many years. Over the course of 32 years in the book of Acts, we visit Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Syria, Cyprus, many cities in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and finally Rome. And throughout, we witness everything from preaching and miracles to jailbreaks and shipwrecks. But even with all of that, Luke is selective in what he writes. He has to be selective, but he's selective in what he chooses to write, which is why we, we have to emphasize that the book is descriptive. Luke's focus is on mainly two apostles, Peter and Paul, 
He narrates some events in incredible detail, but he leaves out things that would have been very important to the early church and to, and to historians. Things that the early church people might have been aware of, but we certainly are not. Things like what happened to Peter after Peter miraculously escapes from prison, Luke simply says, then he left and traveled to another place. That's in chapter 12, verse 17. Now, Luke must have known where Peter was going and what Peter did for the next two decades, assuming that uh, church history is accurate and when he died in around 67 A.D., Surely Luke knew the answer to those questions, but he doesn't record it for us. The only thing we know is Peter pops up for a second in Luke 15 in the Jerusalem council. Second, Luke provides a list for, of the apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 13 when Jesus is commissioning them to go. Now, we know from, Luke, from Acts 1.22 and Acts 2.43-47 that the apostles seem to take that commissioning very seriously. And yet, Luke doesn't write about the ministry of John or James or Andrew or Philip or Thomas or Bartholomew or Matthew or James, son of Alphaeus, or Simon the Zealot or Judas, son of James. We don't know that part of the story. Luke also reports the presence of, of Christians in Damascus and in Rome, but he doesn't tell us how the gospel had reached those cities or who established those churches there. He mentions people from northern Africa, but doesn't report how the gospel reached the large Jewish communities in Alexandria and Cyrene. Now, are these problems? No, not, they're not problems at all. It's just a reminder. If, if, if Luke had included all this, Acts would be enormous. But it reminds us that this is part of our story, a part of our history. It's descriptive of part of the story, a major part of the story, but not all of the story. And it's not prescriptive. Luke doesn't provide a full history of all the major events and developments in the early church, but with a history of the ministries of mostly Peter and Paul. His focus is on Jerusalem and on the spread of the church. The followers of Jesus beyond Judea and Samaria to the Roman provinces in the eastern Mediterranean. And so with all of that kind of laying a groundwork, let's look at the text that we're going to be going through today. Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. And if you're there already, go ahead and stand if you're able. Follow along as I read. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. So grateful for it, Lord. We truly do want to know you, Jesus. As we come to your word, we want to know you. Not just about you, 
We want to know you. And so as we begin this series through this book of Acts, Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to behold what you are like, to behold you, and to embrace you as our King. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We see two really important things right off the bat in the book. First is this. This is a second book. This is Luke's second book that he wrote. And what was the other book? It was the gospel according to Luke. He he starts off and he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, you may not realize this because he's the author of only two books of the New Testament, but Luke is actually the author of the most of the New Testament of any of the authors. He writes more content for the New Testament than any other author. We, we, We probably gravitate towards thinking Paul must have done that because Paul wrote so many different books of the New Testament, but but many of those are so short, content-wise, Luke gives us more material than anyone. And he begins his gospel account in Luke this way, in verses 1 through 4 of Luke 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, Luke for this person, Theophilus, who we would assume is a person in government somewhere, gives this account of Jesus, of the story of Jesus. And the second thing we, we want to acknowledge from the beginning of Acts is Luke acknowledges in his first book at the beginning that other Christian authors wrote about Jesus of Nazareth and his followers. Luke 1.1 says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Many, not just four. And we talked about this in the series that we just finished. But again, those are others And those others are not counted in the canon of Scripture, but there were many people who sought to give testimony of the things that took place, the stories of Jesus. But this book of Acts is a sequel. It's a sequel to the gospel according to Luke, to Luke's gospel account. And we may even say it's not a sequel, it's a continuation of that. He continues in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke says that his first account dealt with the story of what Jesus said and did all the way up until 
He ascended to the ascension. And we're going to talk about that next week. But in light of what he says here, Luke expects his readers to know the story of the gospel account and to read Acts in light of the work and teaching of Jesus. We should go through Acts and we should read Acts being aware of and thinking about what Luke has already written. This is a continuation of his first book. The story of Acts doesn't begin in Jerusalem with the pouring out of the Spirit. It began in Galilee, where Jesus began to preach the good news and the arrival of the kingdom of God and where He began to help people in need. This is Luke's second book about what King Jesus did and taught. We need to have that fixed in our hearts as we work through the book together. This is Luke's second book telling the same story. It's about Jesus. N.T. Wright writes this, Luke, whose first volume we know as the gospel which bears his name, is telling us with his opening sentence one of the most important things about the whole book, which is now beginning. It is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. This is a book about Jesus. Jesus is the main character in the book of Acts. In verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, all of this is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, we learn from Luke at the end of his gospel account, and now here in the beginning of Acts, met with his disciples, apostles, followers of him, men and women, for many days. He presented himself alive, in those 40 days by many proofs. And these disciples, because of that, knew it really was Him that was eating and drinking with them. It really was Him teaching them again. And that's significant. It's significant that these people knew that the one that they saw die, who had promised that He would be raised again, have confidence as they write about Him later. Have confidence that they're eating and drinking and being taught by Jesus again, that He really was alive. And Luke says here that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus' work didn't end in the grave. That's why we're here. He rose, and that's the essential work of Jesus. The resurrection means everything. Every event in Acts is contingent on the resurrection of Jesus. It changes the entire world. 
And so Luke refers to proofs that led the disciples to the conclusion that Jesus was alive after he had been crucified. He wrote about that in Luke 23, uh, verses 26 through 43. The suffering that he endured, he references it here in Acts that way. After his suffering, and then after his death, which he wrote about in Luke 23, 44 through 49, and after he was buried, Luke 23, 50 through 56. They saw all of that. And we know from Luke's account that on Saturday they grieved. We know from Luke's account with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they were in great sorrow, thinking that the one they loved was dead. But Jesus, in His grace and mercy, presents Himself to them as proof that He really was alive. He appeared to His disciples multiple times between the resurrection and the ascension. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 5-7, through 7, that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. As Paul writes that, it, it's written to give us confidence the same amount of confidence that these disciples who saw Him and ate with Him after His death and resurrection would have. Because 500 people is a lot of people to not come forward and say, these guys are lying. The other thing we want to remember and hold on to as we work through this book is the connection of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' kingship. We see that in verses 3 through 8, and we'll look at the rest of those next week. This is so very important. It is about the kingdom. We are seeing the continuation of the kingdom of God throughout the book of Acts. The resurrected king reigns, and his kingdom continues to move forward. And Luke continues to record what it looks like. And so we should ask ourselves again, what does the kingdom of God look like? What account do we have from Luke? And if we were to skim, scan through his gospel account, we see a beautiful picture of the kingdom in the person of Jesus. If you were here when when we preached through Luke's gospel account, you might remember that we referred to the kingdom often as the upside-down kingdom of God. Why? Because it wasn't at all what humans expected. It's, what, it's not what they were anticipating when, when the Messiah came. It welcomed sinners. It embraced the marginalized. It rewards the humble. It heals the broken. It touches the outcast. It loves the refugee. This was upside down from everything that they anticipated the kingdom being when the Messiah would come. But Jesus displays it perfectly, graciously, and lovingly for us. This is what the kingdom is like, Jesus is saying. Look at me. 
Look at my life. Look at my teaching. It is the embodiment of Jesus and His teaching. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus said that it has come in Him. This is so important to know going into this series because I want, I want us to, to, to think kingdom as we go through it. And I think Luke wants the same thing because if you look at the very last verse of the, the book of Acts, the last two verses, Acts 28 verses 30 and 31, Luke writes this, he, meaning Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke does something significant here in his writing and purposeful. He begins and ends with this truth, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And that's what's called an inclusio in writing. It connects the beginning and end of a book. And by doing so, it's connecting all of the content within the book in that way. He connects the contents of Acts, the life of the church and the missionary activity of the apostles with Jesus and His proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like. This is all about Jesus. Luke is writing. And so my hope is that every single week we go through this historical book, we see it through the lens of the kingdom of God. Jesus' story continues. And we're so thankful that it did and that it does. Because we are here and only here. We are saved only if that is true. Only if Jesus is alive and His kingdom continues. This kingdom that looks like what Jesus displayed, and how He lived, is moving forward. And we, His people, are to pray and to live to that end. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. Ultimately, Jesus displayed His kingdom, what His kingdom is like by laying down His life. If you remember in our time that we spent, the years that we spent in the Gospel of Luke, it doesn't take long to get reading to chapter 9. And at chapter 9, everything focuses in, in Luke's Gospel. In chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And every verse after that, until you get to the cross, is, is, is bent on that. He set his face to Jerusalem. And everything that Luke writes from there to the cross is that story. Jesus is intent to get to the cross. And what a blessing. What a grace that is for us, that His body was broken by the purpose of His love, that no one took His life from Him. He gave it freely, that His blood, He says, was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we have the blessing of remembering in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus displayed His kingdom ultimately 
in laying down his life for others, for you and for me. His body was broken and his blood was poured out for our sins. And so you're going to be dismissed to come and and receive the bread and the cup and take it back to your seats. And then we're going to take it all together after we sing. But let's set our hearts on Jesus. What was he like? If we're going to partake of the bread that represents him, his body, if we're going to partake of the cup that represents his blood, his life blood, then let's set our minds and our hearts on what was his life like? What was Jesus like? And what is it he's calling me in participating in his body and blood to resemble, to reflect to the world about him? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you and we need you. We need you, Lord. We see that right away as we begin this book. Without you, without your suffering for our sins, your death in our place, and your resurrection, which is proof that God accepted your sacrifice and a promise that we will have life everlasting. Without your resurrection, Lord, we are hopeless. And yet we, we stand and we sit here today with thankful hearts knowing that you really did die for us and you really were raised. That we have the testimony of not just one or two witnesses, but many, many witnesses who saw you again. And we have the testimony ultimately of your spirit. And so we praise you and we thank you and we ask you in this time that you would help us to remember rightly who you are, what you are like. And as we take the bread and the cup to seek to reflect you to those around us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.